He's the author of multiple books, the latest of which is Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism, and What Comes Next. Bradley, thank you for being here. Will you join me in welcoming Dr. Bradley Onishi? Well, thank you so much for being here. It's uh, super rainy out there, and I know a lot of you had to fight freeways and other stuff to, to get out, so just appreciate it. Uh, I also know you're Southern Californians, and uh, it's, this is cold. I know, I know. Um, I want to say thank you to Ryan and to Kelly and uh, just everyone else who's helped make this uh, happen and possible, and so I'm just so grateful for that. Um, I want to talk tonight uh, about some things that... Um, are on my mind when it comes to uh, my book and the title, Preparing for War. And I specifically want to talk about um, a certain migration that's happening in the country that I think is quite relevant to, uh, to this state. And so let's start um, with a little Q&A or call and response, shall we? Okay. So who has had uh, in the last five years or so uh, somebody that they are uh, considered friend or family move to Texas. Get some Texas going, all right. Let's do Nashville, how about Nashville? Yeah, Nashville, all right. Now here's the big one. Who's got a uh, friend, family, Facebook friend, somebody you went to high school with who's moved to Idaho? Let's do Idaho. <laughs> who's got multiple people in Idaho? Who, if they showed up in Idaho right now, could uh, have a family reunion? High school reunion, yep. A lot, of, a lot of free places this day. All right. So I want to um, talk about that. And I am famously just so bad at this. Oh, there we go. It worked. Okay, there's the book. I want to talk about this. Um, the, nope, not working. Here we go. All right. So I want to talk about what's called the Sunbelt Migration, and then I want to talk about the Make America Great Migration. And we're going to talk about how that fits into um, white Christian nationalism and how it fits into the future of this state and I think the future of the United States in general. Okay? So um, in 1958, my grandfather, uh, Noah Bradley, and his, he was called Brad, and that's how I got my name, uh, told his family they were moving to California. Okay? And so they lived in Portageville, which is in the Boot Hill of Missouri, and they were cotton farmers. And uh, there's a little bit of mystery of why they left, but supposedly he'd had his crops wiped out enough that he was ready to try something new, okay? So he told my mom, who was eight, and the rest of the family, hey, we're going to get in the station wagon and we're moving to uh, somewhere close to Los Angeles. Uh, a short while later, they left uh, Portageville, which is uh, a farming town, as I just said, and a very small town, um, and they made their way to the Golden State. And my mom was eight, her sister was four, and they left behind dozens of family members and the only place that any of them had ever known. Now, eventually my mom, um, they settled in San Gabriel, um, just off the 210, and my mom grew up there for the most part after uh, relocating, and then she moved down to Orange County where um, she met my dad and where I grew up uh, near Anaheim. 
uh, your Belinda to be uh, specific. Now, my mom's a short blonde woman. She's five foot one. She has blue eyes. And by the time my brothers and I came around, she only had like a little bit of her southern drawl left, right? And when we'd uh, go over to grandma's, and my grandmother only lived about a mile away, it felt like we were going to the south because grandma still had her full-throated Delta accent. Uh, she made us ham and biscuits and gravy. Uh, she uh, had more curse word southern sayings than I, anyone I've ever met. I learned new curse words every time uh, I saw her. And what I realized is that it, they um, had made Southern California home, but it's not because they'd adapted to being here. It's because they and many others had brought the South with them, okay? And so I wanna talk about how that works. As you'll see on the screen here, between 1930 and 1960, you have six million Southerners leave home to relocate to major cities across the country. So in those decades, this is how Phoenix and Los Angeles and Orange County become some of the most populated places in the country, right? LA County has more people than like 19 states, okay? Orange County has more people than like 15 states. Phoenix is a top 10 American city in terms of population. San Jose is a top 10, right? And so this is, this is how we get there. Uh, by 1970, more Southerners live in California than in any state in the South. Uh, this it, movement continued over the 20th century as economic growth in many Sunbelt cities after World War II stimulated migration from not just the South, but the Midwest and even the Northeast. So Orange County, where I grew up, just down the road here, was one of the biggest winners of this migration. Between 1950 and 1970, it, the county gains 1.2 million people. Between 1950 and 1960, 85% of that population growth was due to migration from other parts of the country. So they weren't coming from uh, you know, San Bernardino or Riverside or whatever. They were flocking here to LA, to Phoenix, to Orange County, because the Southland offered great jobs, uh, as I'll get to in a minute. The defense industry after World War II moved here, right? And so there was the promise of making a really good living. There was, believe it or not, cheap real estate. And there was great weather all year round, right? Except for tonight, okay? And so this migration, in some cases, makes a lot of sense. Now, Orange County is particularly important to me because I grew up there, but also because it was kind of like an unzoned land. Uh, it was farmland. Uh, it was largely kind of uh, bucolic. And the Southerners and the Midwesterners who moved there, they really saw it as such. They saw it as this is an unzoned lot, and we can recreate, right, what we left. But nostalgia is a weird thing. Nostalgia isn't history. Nostalgia is when you implant into the past a mythological ideal of what was, and then try to make the present live up to that. Nostalgia often treads in illusion, but it forces the present to try to replicate that illusion. And so the Southerners and the Midwesterners were trying to make uh, America great again by replicating what they told themselves is the main streets and the communities they'd left, even though the, it, what they had envisioned leaving never really existed, okay? So there was a vacuum uh, in a place like Orange County of religious authorities, of cultural authorities, very few uh, kind of main streets with entrenched uh, ethnic communities. There was no uh, Jewish neighborhoods, right? No Buddhist enclaves, like where my dad grew up in Maui. Uh, most of his, uh, the people he knew were Japanese American and Buddhist, right? None of, none of that in Orange County, okay? It just doesn't exist. 
What happens is, is the white conservative Christian movement that pops up in, in Orange County and in LA County, let's not leave LA out, in this time was uh, in many ways a new form of American Christianity that's come to dominate the religious landscape of this country. It was entrepreneurial, it was individualist, it was vehemently anti-communist because, hey, a lot of folks were working for the defense industry, okay? It was pro-wealth, and it was one that said, this is a country based on a Christian founding that should re, uh, remain as such and return to those principles as best as we can. Now, uh, Orange County in particular was the ideal setting for this because there was no civic and, and social groups. If you're in Anaheim as opposed to Pittsburgh, there's no entrenched Polish communities that have their own politics, very few unions, very few mainline progressive churches that are gonna anchor the community and draw community members into a sense of collective action, a sense of uh, uh, calling systems to account for their inequities. A lot of those don't exist. The mainline churches had such a hard time keeping up with the population growth, right? The Methodists and the Lutherans and the Episcopalians were really good in the Midwest. They were really good in the Northeast. But so many people moved here so fast that they couldn't form committees fast enough. Anybody Methodist? Has we got any Methodists? You don't have to raise your hand. It's okay, right? But you know how Methodists are, right? They form committees to form a committee, and then once they get the committee going, they get the subcommittee to form the other one, okay? That takes a long time. Well, by then, what you had in Orange County and what you had later in, in this, uh, all over the Southland, were the popping up all churches in those unzoned lands, churches in those uh, unzoned lots. So what's the best example of this? It's Robert Schuller, Crystal Cathedral, right? In the 1950s, he moves here from the Midwest, and he only has enough money for a movie theater parking lot. So he says, let's do it. And he gives a sermon standing on the snack bar. And he says to everybody who's got, right, their, their really good defense job, their little family, says, pull your car up. We're going to give you a little speaker. 45-minute church. That's it. 45-minute. Wear your jeans. Y'all are wearing Hawaiian shirts? Get in here. That's fine. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I don't care if you get in a, a letter-writing campaign. And guess what? God wants you to be wealthy. God loves capitalism. He, the only thing he likes more than capitalism is private property. And he hates communism. So get on in here. That's the Jesus we worship. And what happened? A church like that just went through the roof, right? Okay? And it was not an isolated incident. In some, the Sunbelt uh, migrants were not expats ready to adjust to the cultural values of a new place. They were implants, not transplants. Rather than forming a new wave of outsiders ready to adapt to their surroundings, they were a critical mass ready to reshape the Southland's political, cultural, and religious makeup. It was a chance to create the community and the country they had always wanted. As the historian Carrie McWilliams says, the new migrants to Southern California sought to recreate the sense of culture and values they left behind in the South and Midwest. But as I said earlier, nostalgia has a way of twisting the past and creating an alternative present. And their longing for a past America was in many ways a longing for one that never existed. Their desire to make America great rest, rested on an illusion of what it used to be. The region is and was, speaking about Orange County and uh, certain parts of Southern California as a whole, uh, 
a paradigm for unapologetic nostalgia and political and cultural conflict. And what happened, uh, if some of you are familiar with the, the history, is uh, in the 60s and 70s, Orange County became basically the epicenter of the new militant conservatism that started to uh, cultivate in this, uh, in this country. It became the place that uh, people looked as a model for taking back the country for uh, conservative white people, okay? So tonight, I wanna sort of give you a thesis and, um, and uh, point us to uh, not only the past, but also the future. We're in a, a position right now, I think, many people ask me, and I get asked this question every week, is Donald Trump gonna be president again? What's gonna happen in our country in 2024? Um, how many documents are they gonna find at Biden's house? This kind of stuff, okay. And my answer is, I think we're in a place where if somebody says they know the answer to that, you should stop listening to them because uh, that's misguided, okay? But what I do think is true is that once you open Pandora's box, there's no way to put everything back in nice and tidy. And the animus that he has unleashed, along with many other actors and communities, is not dependent just on him. And as a result, there's already kind of indications of the ways that we're gonna see Trumpism without Trump continue uh, to develop and spread in this country and the ways that Christian Trumpism will also continue to spread um, in the country. And so uh, there's little fires all around us that I think portend bigger blazes or perhaps in some way a bigger fire in the years ahead. Now, beyond everything I just said about the past, I think there's another um, uh, migration to consider, and that's what I call the Make America Great Again migration. Uh, beyond the localized conflicts popping up around the country in Virginia and Michigan, uh, we have people taking out um, electric grids to prevent drag queen, uh, uh, drag queen story hour. We have people showing up with AR-15s to brunch to prevent gay folks from uh, eating. We have uh, folks sitting outside of uh, ballot drop boxes with automatic weapons to keep an eye on things. There are little fires everywhere, but the Make America Great Again migration, um, I think, is something that we can... Uh, talk about uh, as one conflict that uh, often goes unnoticed. So when it comes to the Make America Great Again migration, I'm not talking simply about civil war in terms of North versus South. I'm not talking about states officially leaving the Union, um, but members of MAGA Nation and Christian separatists banding together in semi-autonomous regions where they take over local government cultivate Christian nationalist churches, and do everything possible to create a theocratic society where white Christians have all the power. Now, that migration is already happening. It's been happening. And from places like California, coastal Washington, and parts of the East Coast, to what folks now call the American Redoubt. Okay? The region uh, of the American Redoubt is Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, then Eastern Oregon and Eastern Washington, right? This side of the Cascade Mountains, okay? Spokane and so on. The word redoubt means stronghold or fortification, okay? Uh, it's kind of like a refuge. Um, some people might use the word safe space, but you know. And it's definitely one to where white Christians are fleeing in order to take refuge from the rest of the country. Now this is where we can make connections between the Sunbelt migration that happened in the 20th century and uh, the Make America Great Again migration to the American Redoubt. So let me talk about uh, where I grew up for a minute. I grew up in Yerba Linda, um, and a few years ago, uh, 
Um, let's see. Uh, that's on the left, we have uh, your Belinda Bowl. Now, some of you might know about your Belinda. Your Belinda is where Richard Nixon's born, right? My church is Richard Nixon's church, okay, growing up. So, Quakers, the evangelical kind, the kind that like war, not resistant, apparently, right? Okay. So, your Belinda is famously a just overwhelmingly conservative place, even for Orange County. It kind of sticks out. If you follow the, the school board meetings at the moment, it's pretty clear, right? I grew up going to that bowling alley on the left, your Belinda Bowl. It's a greasy, dusty bowling alley. Could have been on happy days, right? Greasy spoon in there. After, after school, you ride your bike down there, get some French fries, go bowling on a Friday night. Um, it was, you know, a nice little bowl. No lasers, nothing fancy, right? No DJ, just, just a, you know. Now, they tore it down a couple years ago, okay? And you know what they put in? Tokyo Central. A Japanese market. Now, I'm, <laughs> as a Japanese boy who had to get up on Saturdays and drive with his dad to Little Tokyo and uh, buy a lot of food and stuff, uh, it would have been nice that that was there because that would have saved us a lot of time in the car, right? And growing up in a place that was overwhelmingly white, I had no inclination that as an adult I would be walking through Tokyo Central, like picking out sweets, going to the ramen counter. Are you serious? Like buying mochi, this is amazing, right? Some of you might know, but Orange County, on the whole, a little bit more diverse than it used to be. Voted for Hillary Clinton, right? By five points in 2016, voted for Joe Biden. Blue wave in 2018, right? And now it really looks like a place that uh, is a far cry, in some senses, from that epicenter of modern American right-wing libertarian conservatism that I just talked about. But the transformation of Orange County has not happened in many ways through changed hearts and minds. It's not been about conversion. It's not about be the white Christians uh, being born again in a place that uh, uh, was once uh, considered the spiritual home of Ronald Reagan and uh, the, uh, the place that named its airport after John Wayne, right? Yeah, I know. <sighs> By the 1990s, Orange County was crowded, just like LA, right? Y'all have these conversations at the water cooler or with your cousins? Too many people here, too many freeways, too much traffic, home prices, who can afford it, right? So if y'all remember, some of you are old enough, some of you are not, okay? But you remember the 90s, the early 2000s, you started hearing people, you know, I'm gonna move, it's time to go, right? And over the course of the last decades, we all did it just a minute ago, Y'all got your cousins, they moved to Texas, right? Y'all got your friend who moved to Nashville, okay? Remember the, the book, Stuff White People Like? Y'all remember this book, right? If we did that book now, I think entry number one would be Nashville, right? Entry number two would be breweries. Entry number three, Nashville. Entry number four, Nashville, breweries, right? I think that's how it would go. So many people, though, in my life have moved to Idaho. If I, if I did a, a, a little survey, if I went on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, I could find 100 people who I went to church with or school with that now live in Idaho. I, I'm, and I'm not exaggerating. That many folks. There's an orange exodus. There's a sense of white exodus from Orange County, I think, okay? And so I started to think, well, what are y'all doing? Why are you all going to these places? And specifically, why Boise? Why Idaho? 
Some of you who've lived in this region, right? I don't know about you, but when I was growing up in Southern California, we thought this place was it. We lived in paradise. We had Disneyland. We had Knott's Berry Farm. We had no winter. We went to the beach, right? Where Did you want to live anywhere else? That's what I was told. Why would you? You want to move to Kansas, huh? Do you want to move to Idaho? Are you serious? Idaho is now the fastest metro, growing metro area west of the Mississippi. 9.3% population growth over the last couple years. By the 2040s, it'll have a million people, which will make it bigger than San Francisco. In 2018, how many Californians left for Idaho? So California to Idaho, not Seattle, not any, just Cal, not Montana, California to Idaho. Who's gonna, come on, give me a guess. 100,000, just about, okay? It's like 88,000 in 2018 go from California to Idaho alone, right? Okay, so what's going on here? Well, and if you ask your friends, you ask my friends, people I, I, mean, people I went to high school with, church with, they'll say, look, it's too crowded here. If I move to Idaho, I can buy a piece of land. There's a river over there. Okay, good. Less taxes, all right. Gavin Newsom isn't there, I hate that guy, usually, it's what they slip in, right? I got my guns, nobody bothers me. Okay, good, good. And I'm around people that have my values. I'll just throw in there nebulously. All right, thank you very much, Uncle Bob. Okay, we'll talk about that later, right? So let's dig into that. Let's dig into what happens when you move to Idaho. All these folks moving there, Californians, if you ask native uh, Idahoans, they're like, all these Californians, they're gonna make this place liberal. They're gonna turn it blue, this is terrible. I don't want quinoa here. I don't want an acai bowl, okay? I didn't ask for that, all right? I, don't, I didn't ask for a juice cleanse. What are all these Californians coming here, right? And if you ask the, the Boise State sociologist, Jeffrey Lyons, who did a, a, a survey, he actually shows that if you look at the data, the Californians who are moving to Idaho have pushed Idaho far to the right politically. They have made the state much more conservative, okay? So we have a self-selecting group who's moving to this state and they are making a state that has traditionally been quite conservative, at least for the last two decades, even further to the right, okay? So these are not folks who are somehow moving there and turning the place purple or blue, okay? Longtime residents, uh, uh, excuse me, a couple of folks who moved there uh, recently are Corey and Bonnie Martinelli. They've been there about 15 years and they opened a realty company called Live Better in North Idaho. And they now live in Coeur d'Alene, which is uh, in the north uh, of Idaho, the northern strip, what some people, oh, well, we'll talk about it in a minute. So, Corey Martinelli uh, advocates for North Idaho as, quote, the best place to live in the United States. He says the liberal politics uh, in California were a menace to our spiritual rights, our family values, our economic stability, and our constitutional rights, especially the right to bear arms. They uh, basically represent the the kind of idea of many Californians who are moving there, okay? Northern Idaho is a direct contradiction, he says, to the theory that population uh, turns communities liberal. Now, there's another important factor of the, the move to Idaho. Idaho is 93% white. 93 out of, out of 100 people there are white. So when my white Christian friends and classmates leave California, they not only separate themselves from a democratically con controlled late state legislature, but also the communities of color that have a meaningful place in the state's politics and culture. 
They may say that moving is not about race and certainly not about racism. They're adamant that all people of any background are welcome to join. But when 93 out of 100 people in their new state are white, they're extending the invitation from a place where their sense of being the dominant group is in no way threatened, where white people are the unquestioned majority to whom all others must adapt and conform. Now, there's another thing here at play in Idaho. There's no cities in Idaho that really stand in the way of a white Christian nationalist takeover in other states. So let's go back to Texas, okay? Texas is a very popular place. This envisioned as kind of the emblem of red America, okay? But in Texas, you have Austin, right? We all know about Austin, okay? Blue, blue, blue spot in the middle of a big state. But let's talk about Houston. Houston's like the fourth biggest city in the country. Y'all been to Houston? There are so many communities of color, so many black communities in Houston. There are many Latino people there, many Latinx people there, many Asian American communities there. If you do state politics in Texas, you still have to deal with Houston. You still have to deal with San Antonio, okay? If we go to Pennsylvania, we got a lot in between, but Philly and Pittsburgh are always gonna be there, right? Wisconsin, you're gonna run into Milwaukee, okay? We all know about Atlanta, okay? Atlanta has a black senator and a Jewish senator, right? If you do this in Idaho, what do you run into? Boise. Not Houston, Boise, okay? Center right, maybe, center left, depends on who you ask. So the ability to affect state-level politics in a, in, a, in a vision for what you want as a kind of white separatist theocracy is much different in Idaho than it would be in Texas or Georgia, believe it or not. The Deep South is actually not where you want to go, okay? So I'll bring these factors up to family and friends, and I'll say, look, you know, what are you doing moving to Idaho? And they scoff, and they say, look, come on, this is not about, you know, uh, racism, I just want to be around like-minded folks who share my religion and my values. This isn't some American crisis. We're not moving there to be part of some extremist thing or join a white supremacist church. It's just nice to buy a piece of land, have a bigger house, and no regulations on my guns. And then I remind them of who else is moving to Idaho and why. So in 2011, I was a pastor for like seven years. This never worked, not one time in seven years. I've been a, I've been a professor for like 10 years, not one time. It's never, there's no coordination between me and the clicker. It's never gonna work. I have like five degrees and I, so I, I have no understanding of how to work this thing. It's incredible, okay. In 2011, James Wesley Rawls, who's a former military intelligence officer from Northern California, starts calling Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Eastern Oregon, Eastern Washington, the American Redoubt the refuge, the stronghold, the safe place. He wrote an infamous blog post where he identified this region as the last fortress for traditional Americans to protect themselves against what he predicts will be an economic and political crisis. I believe that it is time for freedom-loving Christians to relocate to something analogous to Galt's Gulch. He was following the lead of Chuck Baldwin. Chuck Baldwin was a pastor in Florida. He was Jerry Falwell's lieutenant in Florida. Here's what Baldwin said, American, America is headed for an almost certain cataclysm. As Christians, we suspect this cataclysm could include the judgment of God. As students of history, we know this cataclysm most certainly include a fight between big government globalists and freedom-loving, independent-minded patriots. I would even argue that this fight has already started. He moved his entire family and ministry uh, to Montana in 2010. 
For Rawls, the goal is to create, for Rawls uh, and Baldwin, a separate society of American Christians who will defend their families and communities when the next civil war starts. So Rawls says, I'm a separatist, but not on religious lines and not racial, on, on religious lines, not racial ones. I'm inviting people with the same outlook to move to the readout states to affect a demographic solidification. We're already a majority here. I'd just like to see an even stronger majority. For Rawls, separatism and demographic isolation are the antidotes to the tyranny of a federal government and American society uh, overrun by un unconstitutional taxation, regulations on guns, and limits to religious liberty. The answer is to set up a de facto separate society, to prepare, as he says, for the second civil war here in America caused by the gulf between the right and the left, the godly and the godless, the libertarians and the statists, the individualists and the collectivists. Now, it's tempting to write Rawls off and say, all right, another blogger in his mom's basement. That's great. Good for you, James. His website gets about 300,000 unique visitors per week. Um, he has five books, um, two of which are, are New York Times bestsellers, and they are published by Simon & Schuster and Penguin Random House and people like that, okay? Now, there's others who are helping to implement uh, Rawls' uh, vision for the American Redoubt. Um, he has affected influence over millions of people. There are now realty companies that help people move to the American Redoubt and buy land that will uh, basically be really uh, prone to preparing for the next civil war and helping them hoard and prep for this coming uh, conflict, okay? Um, one of those people uh, is Todd Savage. We didn't quite fit in with the changing landscape in California, Savage told the Sandpoint Reader. We're, we were libertarian Christians who homeschooled, refused to poison our children through vaccinations, owned black rifles, and supported what would one day be known as the Blue Lives Matter movement. On his company website, Savage leaves no room for interpretation as to who is welcome in the Redoubt region. Snowflakes, liberals, socialists, Marxists, communists, and other tyrants that hate our constitutional republic, the Bill of Rights, and want to defund law enforcement are not allowed to engage our services. Now, the Redoubt movement is not just about writers like Rawls and realtors like Todd Savage and others. There's elected officials who are also very much in on the charge. So someone named Matt Shea, some of you might be familiar with Matt Shea, was a state representative in Eastern Washington, Spokane, just on the border of Idaho, from 2008 to 2020. Uh, he supported the armed takeover of federal land that was related to Ammon Bundy and Cliven Bundy. You all remember the Bundys? But what really got people worried was the revelation of his desire for an alternative Christian government that was nearly identical to Rawls' vision for the American Redoubt. The ideal came into clearer focus when his manifesto became public. So here are some of the points in Matt Shea, a state representative's manifesto for biblical warfare. Tyranny is never a divinely appointed means of government. A tyrant is someone who rules without God. Tyranny is not a lawful form of government. Godless civil rulers, meaning non-Christians, is more than a church. Uh, excuse me, that didn't work. Um, godless civil rulers. Oh, I missed a page. Where did it go? I got the slide right, and now the papers are wrong. Is this, this okay? Uh, I was really proud. Okay, now 
when the rule of law dies, as sin prevails throughout the land, tyranny is not far from behind. So what are you supposed to do when this sort of idea of the conflict is coming? Well, you make an offer of peace before declaring war, not a negotiation or a compromise. Those who you are dealing with must surrender on terms of justice and righteousness. You need to stop all abortions, no same-sex marriage, no idolatry or occultism, no communism, and they must obey biblical law. If they yield, they must pay their share of work or taxes. If they do not yield, kill all males. So that's a state legislature in Washington, okay? Now, when this came out, it was even more too extreme for the, the region and he lost his seat, but he found a new position, luckily for him, uh, he wasn't out of work for a long time. Uh, he became a pastor very quickly. And he now regularly preaches the gospel of the American readout um, all over eastern Washington and in um, uh, uh, Idaho. Some of you might know about Doug Wilson, who leads a Christian media empire and set of uh, churches, hundreds of churches and day schools from Moscow, Idaho. Um, Wilson spreads his message via radio, podcasts, and his prolific writing. He's written over 30 books. He also published the recent book, uh, The Case for Christian Nationalism, by Stephen Wolf, uh, which calls for uh, putting people in jail uh, if they do not uh, follow Sabbath laws um, or um, if they're uh, found to be uh, secular or godless. Okay? Wilson made waves in the past for his uh, views on slavery. Uh, in Southern Slavery As It Was, uh, he says that slavery as it existed in the South was a relationship be, uh, based upon mutual affection and confidence. There has never been a multiracial society which has existed with such mutual intimacy and harmony in the history of the world. So just about the time that uh, Wilson set up his church and media empire and Christian day school empire, uh, Richard Butler was um, present in Idaho as well. Um, Richard Butler uh, established a white supremacist church as part of the Christian identity movement, um, and this is in Coeur d'Alene or close by. In simplest terms, a Boise State University review wrote, Christian identity believe believers are convinced that the Bible tells them white people of Northern European ancestry are God's chosen, direct descendants of Adam and the true Jews. Butler was an early California migrant to North Idaho, and his church was eventually, uh, eventually shut down when he and his community marched through Coeur d'Alene waving Nazi flags. But uh, there are uh, signs of um, the presence of um, uh, th this movement still. People wake up to flyers on their cars and uh, propaganda that invites them to join um, the Christian identity movement and white supremacist churches. Now, when I bring up these issues with the folks that I know who are moving um, to uh, Boise, to other parts of Idaho, they reiterate that for them, moving to Idaho is an opportunity to live in a conservative state with affordable housing and beautiful terrain. They didn't go there, they explained, to associate with white supremacists or separatist Christian communities. If they are part of the Redoubt movement, they either don't know it or they aren't admitting it outright. So let's just stop for a minute, okay? have all these folks that we've talked about tonight. Some of you all have them in your life too. Moving to Nashville, okay? Moving to Texas, certain parts of Texas at least. Moving to, to Idaho. And what I ask them when these discussions come up is like, hey, I used to live in Memphis, Tennessee, right? Any Memphians, okay, 901? So I used to live in Memphis. 
Memphis is a city I miss a lot. I wake up some days and I think, oh, I wish I could, you know, take a trip and see my people and see my friends, because Memphis is a place that has incredible music, incredible food, incredible history, uh, incredible um, uh, just uh, communities that have been organizing and doing just uh, incredible human beings in Memphis. It's cheap as chips too. When I moved to Memphis, I uh, lived, lived in a house with other people and the landlord came by and said, hey, do you wanna buy this house? I said, no, I don't have any money, I can't buy this house. <laughs> and she said, you might be able to. I said, well, no, I can't. She said, it's $35,000. Some of y'all could put that on your credit card. I know you could. I still didn't have enough money to buy it, but you know, that's how it goes, right? So here's the thing, right? When I asked that person, hey, Nashville, okay, uh, Boise, Coeur d'Alene, here's the thing, I got, I got other options for you, right? Memphis, buy a piece of land, no problem. There's a nice river there, it's called the Mississippi, might have heard of it, okay? Good food, great music, good stuff. Okay, some of the school districts, not the best. That's what you're worried about, awesome, okay? Not the best, I get it, but you know, okay, sure. Sometimes, some parts of Memphis, just like a lot of big cities, there's, there's issues of, of crime, et cetera. All right, we can talk about all that. That's a whole nother lecture for a whole nother night, and we're probably not gonna agree on a lot of that either. But those are deal breakers for you, right? Okay, and Memphis, let's just be clear, is 70% black, right, as a city. So here's what I say to those folks. So those are deal breakers. You wanna talk to me about education and, and crime and so on? But everything else fits, right? Affordable, piece of land, beautiful terrain, and Tennessee's a red state, like a hella red state, right? Very, very red, okay? Sounds like good, but those deal breakers? But here's the thing. I just talked to you all about Richard Butler and Matt Shea and Doug Wilson and James Wesley Rawls, and the place you're going for two decades has had a concerted movement to build a theocratic separatist society with a long and open history of white supremacy. So you're telling me that's not a deal breaker? You're good? You will send your kids to those schools and those churches. You're totally okay if when you go to soccer on Saturday or baseball on Wednesday night, that your kids are around this by osmosis set of factors. And they look at me like, yeah, kinda, yeah. And that's the game. I'm not saying everyone's moving there because they're an out and out white supremacist who think Southern slavery as it was, was a harmonious multiracial society. Not saying that. Not saying that everyone who's moving there is like, yep, I'm a just complete white Christian nationalist, want a theocratic society, that's why I'm doing it. Most of them are not gonna say that. But when I name the factors and the, the points that are deal breakers for one city and not the one they're moving to, I think we got the game, right? I think they're telling on themselves. Let's look at it from a different angle. What if there was a part of the country known as the epicenter of violent Muslim communities populated by people of Arab descent, which, to be clear, does not exist in the United States. This is hypothetical, 100%, okay? What if there were expansive networks of radical Muslim separatists who moved to New Mexico in order to prepare for the next civil war and what they saw as the impending doom of American society, which again does not exist, hypothetical. And what if throngs of non-radical Muslims of Arab descent were also moving, by coincidence, to the same region. In many cases, the very same cities as these radical and violent communities, but claiming that they simply wanted to find more affordable housing and an amenable place to raise their families and enjoy the outdoors. Would they be given the benefit of the doubt? 
Would this be viewed as a happy coincidence unworthy of analysis or concern? This is what's happening in the case of the white Christian migration to Idaho and the American Redoubt. Run-of-the-mill white Christian families from Anaheim or Sacramento or Seattle may think that they have no intention of associating with extremists. They appear to be moving uh, and truly believe it. They appear to be uh, completely fine, however, moving to places where extremism is part of the culture and politics of everyday life. Once there, they or their children may be radicalized by dint of exposure and proximity to these ideas and figures at school board meetings, city council elections, and debates over state and national policies on guns, land, civil rights, and so on. Now, none of this is meant to in, indict all Idahoans or others in the readout. Many people in Idaho have fought hard to root out white supremacy, welcome diversity, create safe places for all people to live. There are people of color in Idaho. There are LGBT communities in Idaho. There are progressives and independents and all kinds of Americans. My point is not that Idaho is unilaterally populated by white Christian supremacists. My point is that many white Christians are fleeing to Idaho because they envision it as a welcoming place for radical conservative politics, extreme libertarianism, and Christian supremacy. And they're making inroads in local government, state government, and throughout the religious culture of the region. In Kootenai County, in Northern Idaho, it's not that people are asking, why do we have books about LGBT characters in this library? That's not what they're asking, like they might be in Georgia or Texas. You know what they're asking? Why the hell do we have a library? I don't want taxpayer dollars going to this. It's not that I'm unhappy with the books that are in this library and I want to talk about it. I want to talk about why we have a library. That's the kind of culture we're talking about. What scares me about migrants and how they imagine the redoubt as a haven for a segregated MAGA nation free of liberal politics and the complications of religious and racial diversity is the foundations of their vision. Self-separation, geographical removal, intentional homogeneity, outright Christian supremacy, in the belief that America is on the precipice of civil war in which some believe there will be a need to, quote, kill all males who do not yield to their demands. Unfortunately, the extremism that has long plagued the region serves as a mechanism for radicalization, and dare I say recruitment, to anti-democratic views and extreme politics. No one wants to believe, and I'll be done here in two seconds, I promise, their beloved democracy is in decline or headed toward war. This is what the scholar of international relations, Barbara Walter, says in her book, How Civil Wars Start. Yet if you were an analyst in a foreign country looking to events in America, the same way you'd look at events in Ukraine or the Ivory Coast or Venezuela, you would go down a checklist assessing each of the conditions that make civil war likely. And what you would find is that the United States, a democracy founded more than two centuries ago, has entered very dangerous territory. Researchers around the world are coming to the same conclusion. The United States, the bastion of global democracy, fell victim to authoritarian tendencies itself and was knocked down a significant number of steps on the democratic scale, states the International Ideas Global State of Democracy 2021 report. The authors of the report go on to lump the United States with India and Brazil as undergoing, quote, democratic, democratic backsliding and creating a witch's brew for the global health of democracy. <clears throat> there's Barbara Walter, missed that one, good one, Brad. And then there's this, okay. In the mid-20th century, the Sun Belt migration transformed American politics, religion, and culture. 
there was this sense that Orange County and the Southland were places that one could recreate the United States. And I didn't go over the history, and I, I do this in the book extensively. But Orange County is the place that really made Barry Goldwater the GOP nomination, uh, nominee in 64. Some of y'all know that history or you remember it. This is the place that gave us Richard Nixon, right? Which I talked about. It's the place that gave us Ronald Reagan. The place that gave us Pat Boone. It's the place that gave us the, uh, the, the, the cultural uh, center for John Wayne. Y'all love Knott's Berry Farm? The Knott family were some of the biggest funders, right, of this movement. The Knott family were entrenched in white Christian nationalism from the start. They were behind so much of the organizing and funding of all of those uh, networks that gave us the people I just talked about, okay? So in the mid-20th century, you had this migration that reshapes the United States. And as what I argue in the book is the goal is to take over the Republican Party, so to take back America. That's the, that's the goal. And that's been going on from the 60s all the way till now, okay? And we can see it. So when we see something like J6, it doesn't come out of nowhere. When we see something like Donald Trump, he doesn't come out of nowhere. The desire to take back the country for God and real Americans has been with us since the 60s, when we had a civil rights movement, voting rights act, sweeping immigration reform, women's liberation, queer liberation movements and events, as well as the Loving Act, or excuse me, the Loving uh, Supreme Court case, which is about interracial marriage, and so on and so on and so on. When Goldwater gets up in 64 in San Francisco to accept the nomina nomination, he says, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Meaning, if you want your country white Christian, extremism is how you're gonna have to do it. And what I argue in the book is that has never stopped from 64 until now. And a lot of it was centered in Southern California. White Christians' movement from one area of the country to a largely unzoned area laid the foundation for the new religious right and its takeover of the GOP. It seems that in the 21st century, the readout migration may have the potential for a similar effect. Only this time, the goal is not to take control of a political party. The goal is to prepare for the collapse of the United States and the chance to rebuild a theocratic state. Even after Trump is no longer part of the American public, uh, excuse me, no longer part of American public life, the movement to make America great again will remain, and it may be more extreme than even he could have ever imagined. Thanks. So I know it's a rainy night, and I just put a lot of you in a really good mood, okay? <laughs> Having a hard time, but we want to get the music going again, drink some wine. I, there's a lot of energy, but we should probably take questions before we do it, all right? So um, questions? Yes, over here. It's a fantastic question. Thank you so much. So the question is, is about polite theology, right? So hey, we can talk about Doug Wilson, we can talk about um, all these extremists, but what about that person who's sitting up the road? right, in an in evangelical church. The 47-year-old person who drops their kid off at school every, every morning and picks them up and takes them to soccer and so on and so forth, right? Does this have anything to do with them? And I would say, I, I think it does. What I would say is that um, when I, people ask me, what is white Christian nationalism? I say, if you believe the country is built for and by white Christians, then you are a Christian nationalist, okay? And so they may not say the white part out loud, but if you think the country was built by Christian people, and you just reduce the very complex founding, the very complex history of the American story to, yeah, those were Christian people and they wanted a Christian country, then you've already right, entered into a myth that is saying this country was built by Christians. And if you think it was built for Christians, that Christians should be economically, culturally, and politically in power, and others should know their place, they can be here, but they just need to know their place, then you are a Christian nationalist. 
And what I, the reason I use that definition is because it makes that person that I just talked about, the 47-year-old mom or the 38-year-old dad, it makes them a Christian nationalist. And that's what they are. And we live in an age now where Doug Wilson might live in a far corner of the country, right? In a rural part of Idaho. But millions of people have read his books and even more folks on a, on a weekly basis listen to his podcasts, okay? How many folks are on YouTube being radicalized by these voices? How many folks have these podcasts on as they take those kids to school and drop them off, right? One of the things I think we saw over the course of the pandemic and the Trump years in general was that pastors in these churches were really at the whim of all the other pastoral voices swirling around them in the form of YouTube channels, books, devotionals, uh, rallies, and podcasts, right? If it's very much the case that if the pastor doesn't get in line with all those other voices, then the congregation will go find somebody who will, right, uh, voice and say the things that they want. And so um, I would say that there is very much an effect. Uh, we just did a, a series on my uh, podcast called the, about the New Apostolic Reformation. And one of the hallmarks of the New Apostolic Reformation is spiritual warfare language, okay, that you have to get your sword bloody, and you have to be re ready for conflict and takeover and dominion and domination. And what I would say is that kind of language is more widespread than ever, okay, in this country, in those run-of-the-mill, right, uh, middle-class churches that we're talking about. Um, they may not be part of an extremist church in Idaho. They may not be somebody, right, who um, is at what they would consider a really political church. But how many of them really think Sean Foyt's pretty cool, right? And if you do, you can see, the I think, the effect that you're, you're talking about. So... Um, I, I would just say that's a long answer, but the short answer is yes, very much so. And polite theology has always been a wonderful veneer, right, for white supremacy and white supremacist Christianity, okay? Like respectability politics and polite theology, right, has always been just a wonderful American veneer, right, for its most sinister um, impulses. And so that that's, was true then when Jerry Falwell was wearing a three-piece suit and, and doing the old-time gospel hour and ran a segregation academy and wouldn't allow anyone but white people at his church, it's true today. So, yeah? You mentioned, uh, Christians you mentioned mainstream Christians in the Midwest and in the Northeast, and they're around, all around. Um, we're actually part of an Episcopal church yep. in Pasadena. What do you think, I mean, what's their responsibility in fighting back against that and how can they, considering they're actually finding, I think in a lot of churches, but they're finding a decreasing population of, of, of congregants. Yeah, so I, I think the question about the, the Christian religious left in general is really um, a tricky one, right? So I think what is the responsibility? I think the responsibility is um, twofold. I think one is to do everything possible in a public um, facing way to tell fellow Americans that we are Christian people who hold the values of inclusion, of equality, of independence, of affirmation for everyone, okay? Uh, in ways that um, I think Mission Hills does. And I think that one of the things that happens in the mid 20th century in the period I've been talking about tonight is there's a shift in the American imaginary where the default Christian goes from Reinhold Niebuhr and Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and, and FDR, okay? Incarcerator of Japanese Americans, I have to say. If I say FDR, I have to say that, right? Okay. <laughs> So it goes from imagining those mainline Christians, the Christians who at least in word talked about social justice and better institutions and systems, to, to a switch. And then 
from the 50s and 60s onward, who are the, if I say Christian, you say, and the, the average American says Billy Graham, right? The average American says George W. Bush or Tim Tebow. So as much as, I, sorry. That's like such an outdated reference. Like I was doing so well, and then I said Tim Tebow, and some of you are just like, this, this guy, I bought this guy's book? Oh my God, okay. Um, so, I don't know, Justin Bieber? You want Justin Bieber? Okay, I don't know who we have. All right, um, so I would just say, any chance possible, right, as Reverend Barber does, any chance possible, right, as uh, Donya Rutenberg does, to say um, we are, there is a religious left in this country. There's a religious left that is uh, multi-faith and interfaith, and we work together for justice, can change the, the, the public imaginary of what it means to be a Christian and a person of faith in the country. Now, I would say that I think, and this is really tricky, and it is different for every person in every community, but if I'm talking about Christian progressives or Christian mainline folks, as opposed to perhaps those that they might be working with uh, who are Jewish or secular or Muslim or, or uh, of another uh, religious tradition, I would say that there is a family responsibility as best as possible, right, to try to hold your uh, Christian uh, siblings account to account. And that's so tricky. And for some of you, it may not be possible because it's not safe or it's toxic or it's traumatizing and so on, okay? But I don't think that it is the Jewish community's responsibility, right? And I don't think it is the Buddhist or, or even the secular uh, folks' uh, responsibility. This is going to include a lot of knocking your head on the, on the wall. <laughs> it's going to include a lot of people who don't want to sit down and talk. A lot of people who are just going to whisk you away as a woke Christian or something, you know, whatever, right? Okay? But I do think that that work is possible. And I'll just say on an, on an interpersonal level, if, if there is a chance to, to talk with somebody about these things, it, someone in your life, a cousin, a family member, a friend, right? The temptation for me is to start with statistics and data and evidence, and, and, or scripture, right? Like, you know, I got like three degrees in theology and then, you know, left the church. Like, bad career move. Like, really terrible. So I want to use that, you know? I want to use that. So you want to talk to me about scripture and evangelicalism? I'm fluent. I'm, you're not going to, like... I don't have to conjugate those verbs in my head. You know what I mean? Like, I, ha I am good. I'm better than you. I, I'm very confident that if we're going to have the debate, I'm better than you. So my, my, my temptation is like, let's have it out. You want to talk about the book of Matthew? Book of Titus? Let's Obadiah? I'm down. Let's go right now, okay? <laughs> it doesn't help anyone. I can tell you statistics about gun control and immigration. I can tell you statistics about, um, about uh, James Madison's religious beliefs, and guess what? My Uncle Bob is like, <laughs> stop listening 10 minutes ago. But if I ask Uncle Bob, how do you feel? Why are you angry? Why are you angry? I, I'm, I'm not trying to attack you. I, like, I literally want to know. Like, what? You're angry. T tell me about it. Like, I want to know why you're angry. I'm not, I'm not going to, like, get you. I'm not going to tell you why you're wrong for being angry. I just, why are you angry? What are you resentful about? Like, like is there grievance here? Like, what happened in your mind to the country? And you're so full of grievance. Why? Like, let's go. Tell me. I want to know. You're raising kids. What makes you anxious? Like, I want, I'm raising kids, too. Like, what makes you anxious about raising kids right now? Is there's a lot. There's a lot going on, right? What makes you hopeful? Anything? Like, what would, like, really be a hopeful sort of turn of events? And if you let them talk, and I recognize, again, not possible for everybody. You may not feel safe. You may not feel like you can do this without being traumatized or triggered, et cetera. But if you can, okay, then maybe there's a chance that when you get to a certain place of, after listening that they're going to maybe let you talk to. And you can tell them what you're scared about. 
and you can tell them why you're full of anxiety about the future, or you're really hurt about things that have happened in this country or in your community in the past. And maybe you go in that moment from that person that they were told by uh, whatever podcast they just listened to or whatever YouTube channel or whatever pastor that says you're a demon, like Democrats are demons, or like you have serpent blood. I smell sulfur. You have lizard DNA. You want to murder children. You hate God. Maybe all of that stuff evaporates from the person across from them, and they see you, a human, who's also afraid, who's also anxious, and they might, they might actually let a human talk. And maybe there's a chance there, right, to build a small foundation. Again, it's going to require a lot of patience. There's going to be overwhelmingly frustrating <laughs> moments. Uh, and it may not be possible for all, all of us because of various dynamics and concerns about safety and interpersonal relationships. But that, that is one avenue where the mainline Christian might have a chance to, yeah. All right, other questions? Yes. Like a lot of the things that um, you were describing, you didn't um, use this particular word, but it just kind of seems like a one-way road to fascism, which seems so contradictory to what they're saying about like, oh, these people are threatening our constitutional republic. And it's like, that's not even what you're representing. Um, but it just also seems so strange because there's like a lot of contradictions between like who they are and what they're motivated for. Like they're trying to find a cheap place to live, um, but they're also like defending the wealthy, which gives me the impression that they're not even like wealthy themselves. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to ask you like, what would you say for somebody who, uh, people like that who, you know, have so many contradictions within themselves and are kind of like supporting um, groups that like probably in that moment claim to support them in response, but you know, after the second civil war or whatever, um, would probably just make them poor, make their lives worse. Um, would you say like the appeal, like in any appeal to them, if there is any potential for it, lies in the basis of like religion or it lies in like their own poverty? Um, I, well, not their race, I think. <laughs> I think they're pretty proud of that. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, do you think like they're just kind of like an unmovable population in terms of like where their stance is or there's actually like some kind of like leeway where they think something but it's not something that they're actually 100% confident in? Yeah. So um, I think, let's just talk about fascism real quick. Um, so one of the chapters I have in the book really goes into how um, and, and this, we can see this in the vote for Reagan over Carter in 1980. Uh, we can see this in the way that Paul Weyrich and other white Christian leaders were going to Russia in the early 2000s because they realized that Vladimir Putin was a better model of a Christian leader than anything we had here, right? And that's true, and you can, it's in the book. Um, so what they realized in, about, in the early George W. Bush years is George W. Bush wasn't going to scratch the itch. So Vladimir Putin who talks all the time about defending Russia's Christian values, spiritual heritage, and, and traditional families, is a better Christian leader than anything we have here. And guess what? He doesn't have to wait for Congress or the Supreme Court or anyone else to make decisions. He just does it. That's the dream. That's the dream. And so de uh, uh, democracy is not the sacred value here. 
power is. So when you see the impulse towards authoritarianism or fascism, that's not an accident. And you're not, you're not losing your mind. It is there, okay? Um, now, again, you, you ask about like how do you reach folks, and I think that, I, I think on a civic level, we just have to realize that for many communities, um, at least the ones I talk about in the book, democracy is not a sacred value. You have to know that. You just have to be willing to say that the goal is to keep the white Christian um, person in power, and if we have to sacrifice democracy or martyr democracy to save our nation, we will do that. We're, that's fine, okay? You have to know that going in. But, so that's one level, that's a civic level. That's an organizing level, that's an activist level, that's a voting level, right? And then there's an interpersonal level. And I think that's the one I just talked about where um, we, we as humans always give contradictory answers, don't we? I mean, come on, we do this, right? You're kind of irritated with your partner and it's like, what's wrong? And it's like, you know, you didn't ask me what was happening, but then you asked too many times and then, you know, I didn't want to eat dinner with you and then, you know, you left and you didn't eat dinner with, right? I mean, come on, I mean, I'm just, maybe I'm just telling you what I say to my partner, right? Okay. We're really good at, at being contradictory and until we have an ability to kind of process our, what our body's doing and our emotions, it's, it's really easy to find answers that really just are incoherent. So again, I think my response is, let's talk. Like, I don't want to hear about your policy right now. I just want to know, what are you angry about? Like, what are you resentful? You know what I mean? That whole thing. And I think that's a way to at least get someone to realize that, A, um, you're not just like this terrible, godless, um, you know, demon that hates everything they hate and is trying to destroy their way of life or something. You, you also have a body that is full of anxiety and fear and, um, and worry and, and sometimes hope. And so that's the way I think to get into it for sure. So, okay. Um, other questions? Yes. Awesome. This has been amazing so far. Uh, my name's Evan. I run the local atheist community here in Los Angeles, and we joke that atheists and other minority religious identities, we've always been the canaries in the coal mine for this type of religious nationalism, and I'm thrilled that Christian communities are now talking more about this and stepping up. Um, it feels like it's happening now because they're finally realizing they can't ride the privilege of the word Christian anymore. They're recognizing that you're not a Christian to these people. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about the systems and structures that these groups use, because I don't think people understand how well funded and the, the media networks that are being built. And if we truly want to counter this with our values, and protect democracy, the amount of money and systems we're gonna to have to build to do it in coalition with other progressive religious groups. Uh, can you speak to that? Because I don't think yeah. people understand the amount of billions of dollars behind these groups and what it would take for us to match them. Yeah, okay, so I'm gonna start in a weird place, but just give me like 30 seconds, okay? So Barry Goldwater runs for president in 1964 and he gets destroyed by Lyndon Johnson, okay? And he's an extremist candidate with extremist ideas. And when he gets destroyed, everyone's like, whew, that was good, Lyndon Johnson, get in here. Um, thanks a lot, we destroyed the extremists. And the foot soldiers of his campaign never forgot that defeat. And they went on to build the Council for National Policy and the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society. What they realized is, is we can have one candidate, like Barry Goldwater, who's bombastic and magnetic, and he's, um, he's really good on the campaign trail, and then he gets destroyed. Or we can build a, a network, what Ann Nelson calls a shadow network. If you haven't read Shadow Network by Ann Nelson, read it. You can, you can build a, a system of, of uh, networks and institutions 
that just are an engine and they just churn and churn and churn and churn and churn. And that's what they did, okay? So uh, there are uh, organizing efforts that go back two generations. And they, they work in a way that they are not dependent on one person or one generation. And they're full of people who realize, and I think this is something that is really important, and it's, it's important for progressive Christian communities, it's, it's important for secular communities to realize is they know that this is not a fight that is limited to their lifetime. And they're okay with that, right? One of the benefits of religion is that it extends to the edges of the cosmos, right? And the, the, the edges of time. And so you can tell somebody who's in that narrative, this may not finish, be finished when you die, but that's okay because we're all gonna keep moving and we're gonna accomplish it, right? Okay, that's a really strategic advantage. And along the way, since the, the 60s uh, and that whole uh, kind of uh, debacle with Goldwater, they have found billions and billions and billions of dollars to organize in this way. And so one of the things that I always say is that look, um, it's really easy to be concerned about who's president, and we should be. It's really important to be concerned about who's in the Senate and who's in the House of Representatives here in LA. It's really important to be interested in who's in the city council, right? And who's mayor, okay? I hear, I don't know, right? It's also just really, really important to realize that A, they are organizing on every level of American um, uh, life. Every ligament, every organ, every tissue, every vein of this country's body, they are organizing there. Mayoral, PTA, school board, dog catcher, county supervisor, comptroller, they're interested in all of it. And two, this is not a hobby. It's not a, hey, that affected my life and I'm, I'm kind of irritated, so I want to get together with other folks and fix it. Oh, we did? Okay. Whew, let's go back to brunch and pickleball and have a good time, right? This is, a, this is a movement that says this is a cosmic battle between good and evil. So we will pour our time and our money into this in ways that um, require every fiber. So I, I, just, I completely agree that the organizing, the funding, and the networks are in place already, and it requires so much vision to participate in movements that will just be willing to say, we're gonna, we're gonna resist those, we're gonna combat them, and we're gonna build uh, institutions that work um, to, to, uh, on the other side. Um, yes, one more question here. Yes, yeah, I think the mic's coming. This is a, this last question was very helpful to me and your answer too, because for me, you know, I'm, a, I'm aware of the scholarship, I'm, you know, I've, I read some of these history books. I mean, when you said Lyndon Johnson, I knew exactly. Um, and my, the thing that raises my heart rate is knowing that the left, even though we might be, or you know, those for democracy, <laughs> are more in numbers, right, yep. than, than you know, who yep. you're talking about, but we don't organize that way, right? We don't consolidate power that way. We don't, you know, think about infiltrating and net, you know what I mean? We don't do it that way um, because it's almost contrary to the values, yes. right? Yeah. And so, but from your perspective, do we need to start? Do we also need to put a warfare hat on? I mean, this is where I get stuck. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a great question. So I think there's a couple things to think about here. Um, the folks that are here, they operate on a model of conformity, okay? So, and, and those of you who've ever been in like an even, uh, high demand religion, an evangelical church, whatever, you know that if, if you get out of line theologically or politically, you're out of the community, right? You're just, okay, thanks for coming, right? So they operate on conformity. 
Now, that means less people are going to be part of it, because not everyone wants to do this. But it also means it's so much easier to mobilize, right? Because if you're here, you are with us on like every point, right? Not like six out of 10 points, like you're with us. So when it's time to go, you're going to go with us in our direction, and we only got one direction to go, okay? Grand generalization coming, but those who are on the other side, whatever that side is, and it's very heterogeneous, and there's so many different ways to describe it, and progressives are not the same as liberals, and so on and so forth. But diversity, for the most part, at least in word, is a feature. It's a value, and it should be, right? It should be. But it also means that conformity is not a value. And so the work of organizing, the work of working together, the work of walking in the same direction, along the same path towards uh, an arc that bends towards justice, that's, that's, it's, it's harder. It's harder because we're not all going to agree. We're going to come from different communities with different lived experiences and different priorities and different things that we feel as if are ex existential threats to us, right? And so I think that um, that doesn't mean it cannot happen. It just has to be recognized going in. I also think that one of the best positions to be in in, in a war is if you, your opponent doesn't know you're in one. And I think one of the reasons I wrote the book is I wanted folks, as you're pointing out, to realize that democracy is not a sacred value and there are people who are anticipating, right? That if they don't take their country back now by any means possible, that it will go away forever. So they are willing to act in a very extreme way. So I don't think that um, I want to live in, in a world or be part of a movement that is completely based on fear, like I think this one is, right? But I think I do want to be part of a movement that is willing to fight and realizes the urgency of that and knows that it's going to require some compromise and some working together. It's going to require some uh, really hard work to like live together. But it's worth it because we believe in some form in some way that this country has never lived up to, that a more perfect union is possible. And we believe that democracy and liberty and independence and the pursuit of happiness, that the dignity of all human beings are the sacred rights, are the sacred values. And if that's true, then we can, right, fight in a way that is uh, worthy of this, of this conflict, but we have to realize the one we're in, otherwise, uh, it's just not going to happen. So anyway, I'm, I, I hope I answered your question in some way. Um, I don't, you talked about infiltration. I'm not sure if, um, I got to use the right words here. Somebody's going to put this on YouTube. So I got to put, the, um, <laughs> um, I don't know about tactics, but I'll say that like the strategy has to be one in which we realize what kind of conflict we're in. So I hope that makes sense. All right, how about one more? And then I know people want to drink wine and not listen to this little guy talk about this anymore. So, Ken. Yeah, uh, thank you, Brad, for uh, your series on Orange, the history of Orange County, which it was fantastic, and now the new, new Apostolic Reformation. Uh, and, and also, thank, thanks for your book. I was honored to get an advanced copy, so uh, I got to read it. And uh, I was really impressed with how personal you got about your personal story. There's a lot of detail in there that I thought I knew it. I thought I knew it all, and then I read the book. Um, but, uh, you know, I think all of us here uh, have a real passion and a desire to see people change their minds, you know, people who are particularly are caught up in all of this. 
But um, you're somebody who did change your mind. Um, and we know you well enough to know that wh where you started from. And uh, you know you were the kid out there passing out tracks at the theater, trying to lead people to Jesus and caught up in this whole Orange County world that you lived in. Um, could you just reflect a little bit for us all on, on how, you, how you changed your mind? What were some of those moments, some of those awakenings where, uh, where you, you kind of woke up to a, a different way of viewing all this? Yeah, uh, so I think for me, um, as an adolescent, religion was a really um, welcome part of, of, of my life because it provided really short and clear answers to life's most fundamental and disturbing existential questions, right? And so if you've ever been part of a, a religious community like this, you know that if you wonder like, what is the meaning of life? Why are we here? How did the world get to be created? Do bad people ever get what's coming to them? Do good people ever get rewarded? that religions like this are really good at answering. There's no long division, right? There's like no uh, working out the equations. It's just, you got the answer. You know what I mean? You asked Alexa and she gave it to you, right? Or Jesus, really. Um, um, or your youth pastor, right? And so um, that is really attractive. And here's what I think happens for a lot of people is that at some point, the reduction of, of life's most fundamental issues to either or, or to just reductive binaries, it no longer holds, okay? But at that point, a lot of people are already in a place where their entire, uh, their entire existence is invested in that religious community. And so when they face down the, the, the idea of leaving it and reconsidering who they are in the world, it's daunting. It's really, really a lot. And some of you here have done that, and you know how just how harrowing it is and difficult, whether you are in your 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s, you just know what it costs in terms of relationships, in terms of family, in terms of yourself and your identity, and you never know what you're going to sort of discover when you go down that road. For me, and I know a lot of you are like this too, when I accepted Jesus into my heart, he like quickly went to my brain, you know? Um, <laughs> And it was just all about a lot of thought, right? And so as I became exposed to different ways of thinking, my world changed. And then when I became exposed to different kinds of people and communities, all of that thinking was confirmed and I thought, this doesn't hold, right? So I think this is a good place to finish because we can say, if we want to think about people changing their mind, I would say one thing to go keep in mind as you go into these conversations or potential uh, relationships and so on is that there are a lot of people um, who know the center doesn't hold. They know, right? But they're so scared. They're like, if I go down this road, uh, my entire professional, personal, romantic, and familial life is here. The people who bring me chicken soup when I'm sick, the, the people that my kids play with um, after school, uh, the community that I have, the people that help me uh, you know, figure out what's next, the, the folks that helped my marriage when it was kind of in a place, I'm going to say goodbye to all that. And that's really hard. And I don't even know what's next, you know? So I'm not sure I want to ask those questions. And I'm not sure I actually want to, like, pull on that thread. And I think we can, at least some of us, if we have the ability and we're safe and, and it's possible, um, can just be the ones that are willing to not only say that asking those questions is actually really important, but they're going to lead you to a place that might be uh, more difficult, but is way more meaningful and perhaps way more true to who they are and what it means to be a human being. Um, it's so scary, isn't it? It's so difficult. 
uh, especially when you get to a point in life, you're like, I got a mortgage and I got kids and I got a job and do I have health insurance and do I know what's ahead and do I know uh, how we're gonna manage it all? And so when you start pulling on these threads, you not only have to question your religious identity, but you, you might wake up and go, wow, you know, being a religious man, I was also a Christian nationalist and maybe xenophobic and maybe homophobic, maybe racist. Ooh, this is a long list. I was just gonna try to get to the grocery store today, right? So I think we can be people who, who assure them that not only is it worth it to ask the question, but when you come out on the other side, you're not going to be what they've been told you're going to be. And if people at my old church still think about this, right? They're like, why is Brad so angry? His life's terrible, right? And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm not like the best dresser and stuff, and I don't know if I shave today or whatever, but I think it's fine. I feel pretty good. You know what I mean? But in their mind, if you leave the community, your life will be terrible and it'll all fall apart. And the only answer they have is, well, you left the community, so you, your life must be just in complete ruins now. And if it's not, then all, everything I've been told about what will happen if I leave doesn't hold anymore, right? And it's pretty nice to show up and say, hey, how's it going? Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing actually really well. I have friends and I do a thing and my job's okay. And, you know, I walk the dog and the plants, I try to water them. They're doing fine, you know. I've been eating more vegetables. And yeah, my life isn't just in ruins because I don't believe what you believe anymore. And I'm not just angry and, and, and totally like lost all the time. There's actually people who love me. I actually love myself. And it's really pretty cool, you know? So I think we can be that for others, but I think we can also remember just how hard it is to pull all those threads and worry about the fact that you have no idea what's on the other side. And you've been told your whole life that what's on the other side is apocalypse and like personal ruin, you know? So anyway, happy note, let's drink wine and uh, we'll get the music on, so, all right. Never stop. 